Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Welcome back to Latter-day Peace Studies Come Follow Me. I'm Ben Peterson, and I've got Christopher Hurtado here with me today. And we are going to be discussing the books of Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. Now, I had to pause there for a second and make sure that I've got the pronunciation of Habakkuk correctly because I'm not 100% sure on it. But Christopher and I both agreed that it's Habakkuk. Well, that's based on the two Ks. Yeah, yeah. I learned these rules from my wife. She knows all the rules. She teaches our kids how to read, and then I, I teach them how to read. There's something else to say about this, guys. If you don't know how to pronounce these names and you say them wrong, around me and my family, we're going to respect and admire you because we know you learned it from reading. Right. How about that? Good point. Yeah, go with that. (laughs) So Nahum means comfort. It might be short for Nehemiah. So there was the book, Ezra, and then Nehemiah. And Nehemiah means the Lord has comforted, right? So it's got the ending, which is the first part of the Tetragrammaton, the, the Yah of Yahweh. So again, Nahum means comfort. It's interesting to have that name because there's some difficult themes in Nahum that seem to kind of contradict this idea of comfort, but uh, we'll get to that in a second. The book is dated probably somewhere in the late 7th century BC around the time of Josiah. And then, you know, we're, we're talking time of Lehi, start of the Book of Mormon type of thing. But It's possible that it was actually written at a much later time and was reflecting on this period of time. So it's not 100% sure when this book was actually written. It focuses primarily on Assyria as an object of God's wrath and vengeance. This is kind of where the comfort comes in because God is seen as a warrior God who conquers his enemies on behalf of Judah. So the idea is that this comfort is towards Judah. God's going to destroy the enemies of the Israelites. And Judah can be certain that some kind of justice will be done, even though it's not really clear what justice is really in this particular context. I know it's not really clear what justice is at all, right? This is the whole question of philosophy. You guys did a podcast on it and and Socrates talked a lot about it. So it's not really settled. <laughs> yeah, it's something we covered in a recent episode of our sister podcast, Latter-day Contemplation with Riley Risto. And we had a guest for that episode too, right? Yeah, Jeff Goddard got on there with you. I think that episode, as of our recording this, Christopher, we just published that episode yesterday. I have not listened to it yet, but I'm looking forward to it. We didn't settle the question, what is justice? It hasn't been settled in, what, 2,500 years? Philosophers (laughs) have been asking this question. But we gave a better answer than Thrasymachus. Yeah. (laughs) The advantage of the stronger, right? That's kind of what Thrasymachus says, Exactly, if I remember. The strong do what they will, and the weak suffer what they must. That's not it. (laughs) So one of the focuses here is Nineveh, which is by abstraction Syria, because it's the capital of Syria. But there's some stuff going on here metaphorically. Nineveh is compared to a woman, maybe even a prostitute. And then 
this woman gets assaulted by God in could be a sexual way, but more it's about shaming Nineveh, this this woman that is metaphorically Nineveh. Humiliation, maybe? Yeah, humiliation. Again, on behalf of Judah, the idea here is that if God can come out and say, I'm going to take care of your enemies, then that's going to somehow comfort Judah. I think that's a kind of a sadistic way of looking at it, but it's the way Nahum seems to look at this. Yeah. Ben, one of the interesting things for me about this book is that it is the only book that calls itself a book mm. in the Bible. We And we talk about these books, you know, well, we, we think of the Bible as a book when it's really a library. And then these other books, some of them have been little libraries in themselves, or at least shelves in libraries, right? And now we have this book that calls itself a book, the first one ever. Oh, yeah. I didn't pick up on that. That is interesting. And so we're talking the time here. I was going to point out. Uh, you mentioned the the you know the dates, the approximate dates, but there's there's an allusion right in verse uh, eight of chapter three that this is shortly before the fall of Nineveh. Well, okay, so it's after the fall of Thebes from from three uh, eight and shortly before the fall of Nineveh. And Thebes is you. You and I have been there. I, I didn't realize this, Ben. I don't know if you realize this. You know, Karnak. Karnak, and, yeah. Yeah, Karnak, and what's the other place called? Luxor, right? Oh, Luxor. Yes, Luxor. yes, yes. Yeah. So Karnak and Luxor are, that's Thebes, right? So the temples were on one side of the Nile and the city was on the other. Mm-hmm. And so you and I have been to the temple side at least. Actually, we've been to, we've been to both sides. Yeah, yes. I remember I, I went to uh, McDonald's to use Wi-Fi to Skype my wife while everybody else went on a Faluka ride. <laughs> and we've been to those temples, right? Those I remember seeing on the walls of those temples what happens in the LDS temple ceremony. Yes. My wife and I were kind of at the back end of a group, and there was this guy that is just like, hey, come with me. And we're like, sure, why not follow some random Egyptian guy back into <laughs> these alleys of this ancient temple? Sounds fun. So we did that. He like took us back into this part and kind of just like showed us these rituals right on the walls and then kind of like had us go through the and it was just an interesting experience and i know he was just looking for a tip right but it was it was still one of those things that's like that was unique yeah that was the only opportunity to to see or do something like that you know i think we we gave him some money or whatever but it, it was interesting so that's the historical context of nahum there's an interesting contrast here that happens between some of the themes and statements in this book and Jonah, and I bring it up because we talked about Jonah last time. And Nahum is discussing more particularly the vengeance of God, the power he has over enemies, ability to enact justice, as we talked about, right? But then there's this stark difference in Jonah. God is abundantly merciful. He's kind Again, that contrast with the anger and the vengeance that we see in Nahum. And one of the interesting contrasts here is because the subject of the book of Jonah is Nineveh, and it is also the subject of the book of Nahum. Now, sure, Jonah is written in a more figurative sense, and Nahum is really speaking maybe more historically, but it's still, like I said, a stark difference. Yeah. You know, when we talk about their historicity, I think the surest thing we can say is something happened. Right. So something happened, and out of whatever happened, we get these stories. 
And so they do have something to do with something that happened, but that's not their main point. And especially with the book like Jonah, right? We covered that in the, our last episode. But there, there are all kinds of clues in, in many of these books, if not, if not all of them, from the poetry. And there's some great poetry in this week's reading. If you're reading a, a verse translation, be sure to read it out loud. It's powerful poetry. And then you have, you know, things like in verses, you know, two through eight of chapter one, you have an alphabetic acrostic. Yes. Right? Something that, yeah. It's not quite complete though, notice, if just, I remember right. It's like a part of it. Right. Yeah. It's only the first half of the alphabet, the first uh, 11 of 22 letters. What I was saying, Christopher, about this comfort, you know, this idea that God's going to be vengeful towards Judah's enemies, that's comforting to Judah because Judah is perceived as oppressed. So as in other times in the scriptures, we see that the enemies of the author of the book become the enemies of God. So that's what happens in Nahum as well. This presents probably some dangerous ideology in terms of how we're to relate to our enemies. And I think Jesus might have some things to say about how Nahum views his enemies. Right off the bat here in Nahum, verse 2, we get, A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. Like I said, that's kind of contrasting with Jonah, where we get the statement, You are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. So the right. idea here is one of protection. Again, the comfort is coming from the protection of God. Verse 7, he protects those who take refuge in him. Verse 13, I will break off his yoke from you. Verse 15, look on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace, for never again shall the wicked invade you. There's some allusions there to Isaiah with the uh, mountains and proclaiming peace. Yeah, even in verse 3, we get slow to anger, Ben. And, and that's literally, by the way, long of nostril. Mm. These expressions are so fun. You might remember the Arabic um, long of tooth, right? Yes. Is it? Yeah, which means old. <laughs> <laughs> and then you have a reference to the flood, it seems, in verse 8, meaning the Genesis flood, right? Uh, Genesis 6 through 9. There seems to be an allusion there. Oh, that's right. The other thing, Ben, about this chapter, and, and this is something that happens in the Bible in general, right? And so you have languages, like our language doesn't distinguish between the, a masculine and a feminine you, right? Or even a singular or plural you. And so sometimes when we're reading an English translation, things can be less clear. Mm. The addressee, you know, in 1, 9 through 15 is ambiguous. And it's not just because of English, right? Also because there's the second person grammatical stuff going on in the Hebrew, there's even something I've noted as I've gone through the Bible, you know, as a Quranic scholar, I've noted that the Bible seems to have what in Quranic scholarship is called iltifat, which is discoursal shift, right? Shift in pronouns. Have you noticed that? Yes. Yeah. Of course, the endless, you know, meaning of Hebrew uncertain, including in some, you know, passages that could be key, especially when people yeah. are trying to do theology, right? Yeah. Yeah, something that's describing how God is acting, and it's like, meaning of Hebrew uncertain. <laughs> well, it's kind of important. You know, your discussion about pronouns and, and gender in the text reminds me of something in Jonah that I don't think we mentioned, Christopher, and it was that, and, and I'm going to bring it up now because I can't go and add it to that podcast again, but when the fish comes and swallows Jonah, it's male. And then when Jonah's in the belly of it, it's female. 
And then after it spit him out on the land, it's male again. That's right. Yeah, we didn't mention interesting, that. Yeah, interesting imagery there. That's a pregnant image right there, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. One commentary said, "Oh, this could just be a typo, but it also kind of fits with what's going on." So, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Maybe we should talk about that more in Come Follow Me study group. Yeah. You also have in verse twelve, you get this. Speaking of pronouns, right? You get, you get them and you, right? They, the Assyrians, you, God's people. Right? There's always the other. Yes. And so again, I think we see here, and it's it's really important because you're getting these images of a wrathful, vengeful God, although there are plenty of contradictions with the mercy and deliverance and all this good stuff, right? Comfort and whatnot. Although maybe the comfort comes from the idea that, that your warrior God's going to conquer your enemies, right? Right. But we do have that verse back in Hosea 1, verse 7. I'm keeping that one in my back pocket, right? That that God doesn't do this by armies or horses, although there's some beautiful images of horses in this poetry in, in this week's reading. That's one of the things that stood out to me. Did you notice that, Ben? Yes. I'm also reminded of the book of Job. Right? The book of Job has some prancing, charging horses, and they, they want to charge into battle. Remember those horses? Yeah, it's, beautiful this images. is power, right? These are powerful animals. Mm-hmm. They're, they're one of the most powerful animals they had, especially well, the there speed. You go. And, and That's so it. this is evoking this power and ability to cover distance, but then also to wage the war, to overcome the enemy because of the, the power of this animal. It's harnessed. Yeah, that's it. We still talk about powerful engines in yeah, terms of horsepower. horsepower. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Chapter three brings in this personification of Nineveh as the prostitute, and it becomes derogatory. Like we, I was talking about before, this woman is bullied, attacked by God. There's some difficult passages here. This is kind of another place where we could say the Bible is not really rated for kids. (laughs) So the last thing I would have about Nahum is here towards the end, it's talking about Assyria. It says, all who hear the news about you clap their hands. Okay, so Assyria is getting destroyed. The Lord's taking it out. And this is a celebration of the destruction of Assyria because of all of its cruel conquests, right? It's gone through and, and taken down and destroyed all these nations or taken them into captivity. This is what's happening. And this is how the prophets can see the writing on the wall. But the Lord is going to come in and destroy Assyria. And so then everybody is going to celebrate because the fact that Assyria is kind of, you know, getting its due, quote unquote, justice being done against it. Right. Well, that brings us to Habakkuk. So with Habakkuk, we basically know nothing about the person himself, whoever this was. But the book has a lot of psalm-like themes and structure to it. You know, right off the bat, there's this mourning and complaining to God. It's interesting that God responds, but he does not address the specific questions or complaints directly. And that reminded me of Job. Yeah, that's fun. I like that too. There's an important theological point that comes, you know, a New Testament theological point from Paul that comes from Habakkuk. Uh, about faith, yeah. Justification by faith, right, from Habakkuk 2.4. We can compare that with Romans 1.17 and Galatians 3.11. Again, Paul's justification by faith. So we can look at that. But first, in chapter one, Ben, there are some images. You know, this one seems so familiar when I read this. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not listen? Yeah. I first thought of the prophet Joseph Smith, but then I realized, wait a minute, Psalms, right? This kind of lamentation happens, right? 
That's where we go, isn't it? Where's God, right? Yep. <laughs> What's going on here? Why have you abandoned me, right? That is one of the overarching questions here in Habakkuk is why does God allow bad things to happen to good people, right? Why are his people suffering? Yeah. You have the Deuteronomist response, which is focusing on the justice of God. This is punishment for sin. But Habakkuk doesn't really, like I was saying, address that problem of this apparent injustice. More, it goes in the direction of saying, hey, human protest or human complaining is legitimate, it's warranted, but you should still continue to trust God, right? This shouldn't be yeah. cause to curse God and die, right? Like like Job or bless God and die, whatever that one is. It's okay for you to complain and whine as long as you, at the end of the day, are still willing to trust God. That's that's where you know we get those Psalms. That's where we get DNC 121. This is exactly where my mind went when I started reading those. And so, you know, if you read through the first six verses or so of DNC 121, a lot of very similar themes and even phrases in there to what we see here in Habakkuk and then also Psalms. Yeah. And then in verse three, you know, why do you make me see? And I'm adding that emphasis and, and I'm going to back it up by referring to verse 13. I'm going to compare verses three and 13. Why do you make me see wrongdoing and look at trouble? Verse 13. Your eyes are too pure to behold evil, and you cannot look in wrongdoing. It reminded me of how long will you hide your face, right? Yes. Again, from Joseph Smith, right? And so, why do you make me look at wrongdoing? You're not looking at it, right? You're hiding your face from the evil. You can't look at it. Why do I have to look at it? Yeah, so DNC 121 verse 2 says, How long shall thy hand be stayed, and thine eye, yea, thy pure eye, Behold from the eternal heavens the wrongs of thy people and of thy servants, and thine ear be penetrated with their cries. Right? So we have oh, they're the being pure eye, then. Oh. the actual same same idea here. But actually beholding. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas here in 13, he can't, right? Well, then come the horses, Ben. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more menacing than wolves at dusk. Their horses charge. Man, this stuff soars sometimes. You've got to read it in verse. You've got to read it out loud and savor it. It's good stuff. Yeah. One of the things that I found in the commentary and footnotes was a translation curiosity in verse 12, Christopher. The Masoretic text says, O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have marked them for judgment. Now, that's interesting because the Hebrew actually says, you shall not die. A minor clarification, the Masoretic text is Hebrew too, right? So you're comparing the ancient Hebrew tradition, right? Gotcha. With the Masoretic text, right. which is a late. Right. It's actually a translation, a back translation from the Greek. So it is Hebrew, but it's a, it's a back translation from a Greek translation of an ancient Hebrew tradition that said you, right? Uh -huh. <laughs> Not we. Yeah. The Masoretic text comes in and puts we because these scribes that did this were completely uncomfortable with any suggestion, even if it was a denial of the fact that God could die. Right. And so you couldn't even mention the fact that he couldn't die because of the exactly concerning theological implications there. Well, listen, Ben, if you have any concerning, uh, any theological concerns, just change the text. <laughs> That's right. I want to speak to that in, in all seriousness, because we've mentioned this before, right? There's no true 
Mormon, right? There's no true Latter-day Saint. We all have our own God. We, I think our conception of God says more about us than it does about God, right? What is it Voltaire said? In the beginning, God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. So yes. we get a lot of that in the Bible. And we get a lot of that in our ward, in our neighborhood, in our family, right? It happens. Sure. So in verses 2 and 4, Ben, I noticed you have violence. And this is something that shows up a few times, six times to be exact, right, in Habakkuk. It always seems to signify some kind of confusion or disruption of order. So you can think of it as chaos, right? And then that's contrasted in verse four with the law, which when we read the law, this means Torah, right? This is the Torah. And so again, we get this theme of order versus chaos, right? Mm. And that's over and over in the Bible. And then the other thing that really stood out in this chapter, Ben, is in verse 14, where the people are actually compared to fish yeah. and crawling things that have no ruler, right? I mean, this is really different from Psalm 8, right? Humans are slightly less than God in Psalm 8. And here in, in Habakkuk 1.14, they are like fish and crawling things that have no ruler, we're dealing with the difference in order here, right? Sort of an allusion to creation as well, right? With the fish exactly. and the creeping things. So Yeah, there's some kind of difference in, in where we're seeing the order of things, right? How much of order is there versus how much of chaos is mm, there? Yeah. And are we in some kind of, how should I say, some kind of metamorphosis, right? Where we're going from order to chaos or in that wisdom pattern, as Richard Rohr put it again, right? Or regress from order. Less less ordered state. Right. Yeah. So you can you can go from non-order to order to disorder to reorder. And this is we see this over and over cyclically occurring in the Bible. Chapter two takes up the theme again of this complaint and is expecting a response from God. So there is this response from God. And there's an interesting line here in verse three. If it seems to tarry, wait for it. It will surely come it will not delay. Look at the proud, their spirit is not right in them, but the righteous live by their faith. So again, here is this talking about the deliverance of God or the justice of God that a person is waiting for, expecting because all of these injustices have happened and surely God needs to respond to our petitions. But then we get that statement there at the end about faith, right? Yeah, the righteous live by their faith. No, Ben, I want to back up to where you began, right? Because if it seems to tarry, wait for it. That's beautiful, right? And then we, we read the second verse that it will surely come, it will not delay. That's funny because I guess, you know, if it's if it's tarrying, it's delaying, but I guess it seems to tarry. Yeah. So it's it will just actually your perception. not delay, right? Yeah. It's it's a very nuanced two verses. It's beautiful, beautiful language. Everything's happening when it's supposed to happen. <laughs> Exactly, right? In the Lord's time, as we say. So if we back up to verse one, this is again one of these pronoun differences. They're giving us in this translation, the NRSV, he, right? So let me read this. I will keep watch to see what he will say to me and what he will answer concerning my complaint. But that second he, the he will answer, comes from bringing the Syriac in because the Hebrew reads I. And that makes no sense. So what our translators do is they say, well, that makes no sense. Let's go with the Syriac. It says he. I was looking into this for the New Testament coming up, Ben, you know, this coming year. 
And there are just so many manuscripts and so many differences. You come with with the best critical text you can and you make choices, decisions, right? That's what translating is about. It's making choices. It's also about betraying. (laughs) Yeah. Traduttore, traditore, right? Translator, trader. That's the Italian. So, but the other thing too is that there are choices. Those choices are influenced by one's own theology, right? There's the way you read the text. And so it has to be read to be translated. It has to be understood to be translated. Sometimes you get a better understanding from a translation than from an original. I remember telling my German teacher I was studying German so I could read and better understand Kant. And he said, Christopher, Germans study English to read and understand Kant because the translator had to understand him to translate them, whereas yeah. they can't, right? Yeah, don't, don't fool yourself into thinking you can learn English better than the person that tried to translate Kant from German to English. <laughs> and so you get these differences in the text. Here's another one in verse 16 where it says, drink you yourself and stagger. Of course, if you would drink, you would stagger. But to get that, the translators took the stagger from a Greek manuscript. The Masoretic text reads, you would be uncircumcised. And, you know, that makes sense too, right? If, If you drink, you yourself would be uncircumcised, meaning... You're unclean, right? I don't know. It, why wouldn't it say unclean? It says uncircumcised. It's I strange. guess, you know, yeah. it made more sense to say if you would drink, you would stagger. And so that's what we have here. And I'm not really even looking at the, the King James Version, right? They, they had the Masoretic text to work with. So these questions may not even have come up for, for those translators. And this isn't the kind of stuff that's really footnoted in this way in our LDS standard work. So once again, I recommend looking at study Bibles. And last time I mentioned that there are King James Version study Bibles. I did look at one at the bookstore between last time and this time. And I can say there's a good one from Thomas Nelson. They're the largest Christian publisher in the world. Something interesting came up for me in verse 11 of chapter 2. The very stones will cry out from the wall and the plaster will respond from the woodwork. This is speaking in context of the injustices that have happened, right? That that there's such injustice that the very stones will will cry out. And I thought, man, there's some other place in scripture that this happened. And then I remembered it was when Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding the donkey, right? And through the the door, and all the people are there around gathering, saying, you know, Hosanna, blessed be. He that comes in the name of the Lord. And this is in Luke chapter 19, verse 39. It says, And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Wow. So I thought, you know, where that phrase comes from, why, why is it used in both of these contexts? And to me, it's this imagery of like, there's some sort of injustice going on that if it's not addressed, the stones themselves, the earth itself will do something about it, right? Here, Jesus is saying, no, 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 they have to cry out in praise. If they didn't, you know, there would be some great injustice imbalance within the world. Wow. Can I go into horses now? Yeah, you can talk some more about horses. (laughs) Okay. Back to all the pretty horses. You kind of spoiled it for me a little bit, Ben, because you made them weapons. And I, re- I thought, am I just, am I romanticizing these military images on my nonviolent podcast? I just love horses. They're not necessarily weapons, but they are engines of power, right? That drive this war machine. They are. Okay. So I'm going to jump around a little bit 
Verse 8, when you drove your horses, your chariots to victory. 13, you came forth to save your people, to save your anointed. 15, you trampled the sea with your horses, churning the mighty waters. See, I mean, you can really have fun with this. I read all of it out loud, but as those stood out to me, I just read them together like that, and they just really sing, you know? So you can see this is comfort, right? This is what the people want to hear. Yeah, that their God is powerful. Right. My God is powerful. He's going to handle, he's going to take care of things. Exactly. Okay. So here's an interesting thing though. In verse 13, one of those verses I read, Ben, you came forth to save your people, to save your anointed. Wait a minute. The anointed is the one who saves, isn't he? (laughs) Now he's being saved. What's going on? The anointed refers to a, a Davidic king. Yes. So, but again, we really are still getting that the Messiah is being saved <laughs> rather than saving. So that was an interesting verse for me. Verses 3 to 15, the translations that we have translate the verb tenses as past tense, something that happened in the past, but the actual verb tenses are ambiguous. You mentioned this, Christopher, back when we, I think, got to the end of Isaiah, and it was talking about how the the different verb tenses were translated about what God has done. You know, it's actually more, could be more like, well, is God doing. is doing, you know, it, it does all the time. It's just a statement Presently, of who he is. Yeah, God is already mm-hmm. always doing this. And so I just thought that was yes. an interesting note there to make about the translation we have versus what the actual verb tenses on this are ambiguous. They're not stating a particular time frame. In verses three through seven of chapter three, we get Midian, which is on the east side of the Gulf of Aqaba. And I didn't realize that. Right? So you and I have been there. You've been there too, right? Yes. Yes. This is southeast of Judah, right? Yes. And then you start getting in verse eight, you start getting rivers and the sea, right? And the deep. Did you notice that? We're back to those chaotic images, those watery, chaotic images where God has to have victory again over these cosmic forces that reverse the order of things and bring things back into order again. So we're back again, so many images of creation, right? Back to the yeah. creation all over again. Common themes with Psalms. Yeah, there's, it's very psalm, psalmy. <laughs> Habakkuk is very psalm very psalmy, yeah. yeah. So towards the end of the book here, we get words of the prophet again. And this is kind of a reflection that he has after having received this vision. And he says, I hear and I tremble within. Like he's awestruck at this vision. It's his reflection on how this vision is sort of a response to the questions about human suffering. And to me, it was it was interesting in light of what we talked about with Job, how God didn't, again, really answer the question and the accusations that Job had, but he did appear and it and it was his presence or his revealing that was enough in some way. So the prophet here has this vision and is awestruck at the, the wonder, the majesty, the power of God, and it's enough for him. He's he's ready to wait patiently and quietly on God now. Yeah, you know, when you say he's enough, immediately it came to my mind one of the 99 names of God in the Islamic tradition, Al-Kafi, the sufficient mm. one, mm. right? He is sufficient. That brings us to Zephaniah, Ben. Yeah. What do you have to say about Zephaniah, Christopher? Well, we have some corruption and injustice in Judah, right? Nothing new here. And because it's not new, it links this up with earlier prophetic tradition, right? Yes. 
Some have suggested that maybe Zephaniah was a disciple of Isaiah. He does take the theme, the day of the Lord, right? That theme of the day of the Lord, that tradition, and he brings it into his message of judgment against Judah. But he doesn't leave them without a promise of hope. So we get that pattern again of judgment, hope, you know, rescue, right? That kind of pattern. Right, right. But the promise seems to be for the just remnant. This idea, you have this again, this idea of the just remnant. Again, it sounds a lot like Isaiah, right? Yeah, there is a lot of So similar. it's not for the corrupt. Yeah, it's not for the corrupt and disobedient leaders, right? Those people Zephaniah has a problem with. He seems to be familiar with them. And that tells us that he may have been from among them, meaning of their class. So here you have someone who's from this wealthy class that is taking advantage of the poor, and he steps aside and he says, I'm going to stop participating in this and I'm going to speak out against it. There is at the beginning of Zephaniah this genealogical link to Josiah, like the king. Right. And so, you know, yes, there's this part of that class, but then he's also Deuteronomistic, right? So he's he's going along with these uh, reforms of Josiah that we see within that 7th century uh, BC. And so there is within that a lot of discussion about the sins of Judah and, and the reforms that need to be done. So, Ben, I have a sense that the day of the Lord, as it shows up here in Zephaniah, like many other things that we've read in the Old Testament or in the Hebrew Bible, is not about the future, meaning thousands of years in the future. I don't know that this is about the day of judgment. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, so it's not prophesying some future specific event. The day of judgment is a reckoning. And so that is a day of the Lord, if not the day of the Lord. I'm just not sure that the meaning that they're giving it is eschatological, right? right. In that sense of something at the end of times. Well, I get the sense that, you know, with that description, and now I'm remembering some of the commentary, is that this isn't necessarily referring to some universal objective specific like you said end of the world type of thing but is more about like a subjective individual experience maybe that each individual has or maybe that a society has that is more right. cyclical right like this happens exactly. multiple times right you're going to experience Whenever there's an a reckoning. end of your world yeah Exactly. Or the end of the world, as we've discussed it, as happens all the time, whether it was the Black Death that changed economic circumstances, social circumstances changed. Same with the present pandemic. Is it still present? The past pandemic, the, the, the most recent pandemic? Amazon deliveries back to two days. So I think the pandemic's over. Okay. <laughs> okay. Is that how we know? Yeah. <laughs> So the world ends all the time. And then, of course, as you pointed out, Ben, it ends for each of us at some point. Multiple fulfillment prophecies, right? Multivalence of interpretation of prophecies. The thing is, is to stay open to whatever it is that the text may speak to you, right? Yeah, there are some statements here that, that do seem pretty broad right off the bat, though. Like here in verse 2 of Zephaniah chapter 1, it says, I will utterly sweep away everything. And he's talking about like a, a universal destruction of, of humankind. This seems to like be oh, yeah. an overturning of the divine promise back in Genesis with Noah and the flood to never destroy the earth again. So we have this, that's right. this strange pronouncement that's like, wait, 
you are threatening this, but you promise to never do this again. I picked up on that. You picked up on a further clue, right? And, and you said you saw an undoing of Babel too. Yeah. So over in chapter three, when, when we get to chapter three, there's a place, verse nine, it says that he'll change their speech to a pure speech, right? This is an undoing of the Tower of Babel where the speech was corrupted and then they were scattered. So, you know, just like we, you were saying, Christopher, there's these days of judgment, that, but then there's hope. This almost seems like a, a more of a gathering type of thing, right? Where people are gathered back together, an undoing of Babel, people's speech is then purified. So, yeah, I didn't, I didn't really read that that way. But now that you pointed it out, it does look like a reversal of the flood and of the, or at least of the promise of no more um, universal destruction uh, as it as it's put forward right in the flood story in this book right you get to that Zephaniah is going after the priests and the prophets again right this this is happening again and of course you still have the Canaanite religion apparently is still going strong right and so you still have these attempts at religious reform that we seem to be you know pushing further right <laughs> We can just keep going in that direction. <laughs> we're going to get to that. We're going to get to the to the point where where God is transactional. We're going to get there if we just keep pushing, right? <laughs> and we're we're obviously pushing in another direction with this podcast, also with Latter Day contemplation, right? A direction where we come into a a relationship with God that isn't transactional, right? So much as the Deuteronomists would have it. And then, of course, you know, when it comes to calling things by the right name, that's sometimes a big deal for people. It says in verse four, and I will cut off from this place every remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priest. Now, Baal just means Lord, right? So it's kind of fun when you read this that way. That's the Lord. They're going to cut him off. And then we're going to have the Lord in small caps in the King James Version, which is actually the Tetragrammaton, which is the sacred name that's not supposed to be pronounced that we say is Yahweh. Or Yeshua, some say. Well, this is that old discussion, Christopher, where, you know, the names of God, where it's like, well, the name is is different in a different language. And so the cultural implication is that we're talking about a different God. But, you know, it's really the same God, kind of like the Greeks say, Herodotus is like, oh, they have this God, which is really the same as our God, they just call it this. But then in the Israelite conception, their God is the only God. And so no other peoples really worship their God, except we have these times where, you know, like in the book of Daniel, it's acknowledged, oh, that the Lord is is God. But if the people have a different name for a God, it can't be the Lord. It can't be Adonai because it's a different name, right? So the name of God is, is extremely important to the identity for the people. And so again, if you have a different name, then it must be a different God. And you know, some of this mindset still persists today with people. Yeah, and we had God earlier in the Bible. He wouldn't want us to know his name because and yeah. somebody wanted to know his name, right? Because that gives him power over God. If I can name him, right? Yeah, I can sort of like Abraham. that means I can sort of comprehend him in some sense, right? So it just becomes really interesting to think about what is going on here, right? Yeah. What's in a name, Christopher? <laughs> What's in a name? Yeah, exactly. There's a reason we say that. And then there's a little bit more to this, right? Because as we mentioned before, this still goes on today. Uh, you have people saying, Christians saying that that Muslims are worshiping some other God than the God, right? 
because yeah. they worship Allah. And Allah, everybody knows Allah is a moon god. Well, no, everybody does not know that. Only people who don't know what Allah means can know that. <laughs> and you can actually know that because you can't know something that's not true. That's epistemology, right? So it turns out Allah is just God. It's just the Arabic word for God. So if you read the Book of Mormon, you'll find Allah, God. If you read the Bible, as, a, as Arab Christians have done since before the rise of Islam, you get Allah, God. And the same in the Doctrine and Covenants in the Book of Mormon. There's Allah, God. But here he's going after the remnants of Baal and the, the name of the idolatrous priests, as it reads in verse 4. And those who swear by Milcom. Do you know who Milcom is? Because it could be actually Malcolm, right? Their king. So this is interesting. You've brought up this point before, names that aren't names, right? Speaking of names. Right. <laughs> so that right. this is capitalized as a name, but it might just be Melikum. You know, it might just be their king. Their king. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, there's an interesting, that's an interesting statement here, right? If we were to say those who bow down and swear to the Lord, but also swear by their king, right? So this is, yeah. this is, um, Christ and Caesar, right? This is God versus the king, or we might say within our tradition, no king but Christ kind of thing. But again, we've got these serving two masters, right? Right. There's this verse. I'm going to want to know what you have to say about it, Ben. Verse 10. It's not the verse. It's not the whole verse. It's the, the fish gate, and it's capitalized in, in the NRSV, right? So in Jerusalem, there's different gates, and they're named different things. Oh, this is one of the gates of the city of Jerusalem? Yeah. I believe so. I didn't realize that. I know some of the gates by name, the ones I used. Okay. Christopher, you mentioned in connection with Zephaniah, the discussion of the remnant. So here in chapter three, verse 13, we say the remnant shall do no wrong. That is this remnant that has gone into exile and then is returning, is going to return and rebuild Jerusalem. They become seen as more faithful, more true. They've preserved the identity through the exile. They're the ones that come back and rebuild the temple. In fact, there's a point in Ezra Nehemiah where it says, you know, hey, we don't want the help of the people that stayed in the land. We're going to do it ourselves. Uh, the idea again is that they're the ones that really know how to do it right. This came up with the Zadokites, with Ezekiel, I believe, and the, the Zadokites were the ones that wouldn't be prohibited from doing the temple rituals because they weren't the ones that messed up. They did it right the whole time. It was everybody else that messed up. Ben, going back to chapter one, I have this subheader in, in my study Bible, the great day of the Lord is from verse 14 through the end. And I just wanted to read some of that. The poetry really spoke to me. I don't know if this is versified in your King James translation, but here in the NRSV it reads, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The warrior cries aloud there. That day will be a day of wrath a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring such distress upon people that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. We do walk blind, right? When we walk by our own light or lack thereof rather than by God's light, right? Verse 15, you read, a day of ruin and devastation. The Hebrew of that the day of ruin is Shoah, which is the term that is now used more, I guess, officially to denote the Holocaust. We call it the Holocaust, but the more appropriate or more used term now is Shoah. 
Again, here that's translated as day of ruin. You know, I really appreciate so that, Ben. Right. I didn't know that. I, I think it is a much more appropriate way to speak of, of the horrific event. The use of this term Shoah would be good for people to consider start using. And if someone they're talking to doesn't know it, it can be like, oh, and it's also referred to, unfortunately, as the Holocaust. I think that's helpful. It really describes more what we're talking about here. This term you mentioned reminds me of the Arabic term Anakba, which is the disaster or catastrophe or cataclysm. And this is, you know, the Palestinian catastrophe, as, as another way it was called. This is the destruction of, of the Palestinian homeland in 48, where the majority of Palestinian Arabs were displaced. A lot, of them, a lot of them ended up in Jordan, where we met a few of them. And two of them, by the way, two of them are prominent uh, LDS, right? The, two of the Arabic interpreters are Palestinian, or are three of them Palestinian. I think three of them are Palestinian. Sahar <laughs> Jabra and Abu Nuwara, is it? Sahar Kumsiya even wrote a book, right? I can't remember the name of it, but she wrote a book about her experience of finding peace in Christ while bombs were falling around her as a, a native of Bethlehem. One of the points you're bringing up here, Christopher, is that when you have these cataclysmic events that happen to a particular culture, people, society, they become obviously part of the long-term trauma of that people, but then they're going to title it something, they're going to give it a name, right? And so just as maybe this name of Shoah refers to this terrible thing that happened to the Jewish people, and by the way, you know, it wasn't just Jewish people that were killed by the Nazis in mass, right? There were lots of other people as well. But we turn to these other instances where these terrible cataclysmic events happen to a particular people, they're going to name it and it's going to persist within their cultural trauma, you know, at least for several generations. Within the Old Testament, you know, they refer to the Babylonian exile or, or the conquest and then the destruction of the temple as the catastrophe as well. So this is another event that has a major significance. So some of these words, they just mean disaster or catastrophe or fall. Yeah. And yet they're used a particular synonym among those that you could use are used to designate a specific event, right? Because the event is so traumatic. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Another verse that really stood out to me in the poetry, you know, is verse 18, part of verse 18, where it says, in the fire of his passion, the whole earth shall be consumed. Beautiful language. When I read in Commonplace, Ben, and I taught my kids this, I, I stole this from somebody, I can't remember who, but we use this BL abbreviation for beautiful language. If something stands out for the sake of the beauty of the language, mm. that's how we tag it, BL. Yeah. This is a BL one for me. In the fire of his passion, the whole earth shall be consumed. Now, of course, fire, speaking to a nonviolent reading of this verse, fire is a symbol of purification. Right To see God, which is his promise to all of us, we have to be purified. And we can get help from God in being purified. He has the fire. This is what the alchemists are after. They're not looking to turn base metals into gold. They're looking for purification of their souls. So Zephaniah, Christopher ends this way with verse 20. At that time, I will bring you home at the time when I gather you, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Amen. That's hope, right? That's the idea. There's the hope. He does not leave us without hope. God is great. Thank you, Ben, for being with me. Thank you, Christopher. 
Thanks to our team at Latter-day Peace Studies, my co-host Ben, my co-host Riley on our sister podcast, Latter-day Contemplation. Thanks to Michael and Kyle and Tom and Jeff and Bethany. Thank you all. If you have comments, questions, thoughts, feelings to share, reach out to us. There's Facebook, there's YouTube, there's Apple Podcasts, your favorite platform. Ben, you said our podcast is now on Amazon, Audible, I guess. Yeah, Audible. Yeah, it can be found on Audible or Stitcher or Apple. Yeah. Thank you. For Latter-day Peace Studies, I'm Ben Peterson. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. <laughs>